0: Well, good morning. Brewers out there listening likely already know a thing or two about the Munich malt, what it tastes like, what beer styles it's used in traditionally, and how flavors or characteristics of Munich malt contribute to a finished beer. The purpose of our podcast today is to dive a bit deeper and explore what brewers, both professional and homebrewers, may not know about Munich. The term Munich malt has a much wider interpretation than other malt styles, such as Pilsner or Two Row Malt. Munich malts can uh, have enough diastatic power for self-conversion, or they may have no diastatic power at all. Come in a wide range of color, all the way from about 4 SRM to upwards of 30. It's easy to see how confusing it can be to find the right Munich malt for your beer. Like our popular past episode, Dextrin Malts, we once again pulled together three heavy-hitting expert guests from three different malting companies, Great Western Malting, Brees Malting, and Best Malts, to discuss their philosophy and thoughts behind their Munich style malts. Today, we demystify the Munich malt. And there's no one more excited about this episode, well, other than myself, than my buddy Grant Lawrence, the uh, Country Malt Group South Central Territory Manager, who tends to join me on these things, but he's been like a kid in a candy store waiting for this thing. Hey, Grant.
1: Hey, Toby. Yeah, good to be here. One of my all-time favorite malts. So, really excited to get the scoop from the experts today.
0: Yeah. Grant had the hand in organizing the the questions and content for today. And he was extremely excited. I think we wrapped this thing up in about what seems like 10 minutes. So great content. I'm looking forward to it. And yeah, let's jump right into it. Uh, I'd like to introduce our first guest, to the podcast, who has been a guest prior. It's our friend up at uh, Great Western Malting, Terry Farendorf, who is the Malt Innovation Center Manager. And Terry's been around. I'd be surprised if people listening don't know Terry or have not heard of her. Terry, how are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I went pro in 1988, if that tells you something. So been around a long time for sure. Before I joined Great Western, I had been a brewmaster for 19 years, most of it at Steelhead Brewing in Eugene, Oregon. And in between that gig at Steelhead and my post here at Great Western, I went on the road on a semi-famous road trip because I started Pink Boot Society during that time.
0: Nice. And Terry, so what do you do now? You've got a pretty cool gig at uh, at Great Western and actually have a hand in developing and really coming out with new malts and specialty products, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. If you can't be a brewmaster, uh, the next best thing is definitely being the malt innovation center manager at Great Western Malting Company, for sure. I love it here. We do some pretty important things. I feel when new crop is coming in, we do test batches. We we test malt it so that the plant knows what to expect. Because barley can be grown in dry land, waiting for farm, uh, waiting for rain. Barley can be grown in an irrigated field. It could be grown at altitude. It could be grown at sea level. Basically, every farmer's field is a different microclimate. So the molster has a pretty tough job. They're taking these divergent, really different raw materials, barley, and trying to put out a super consistent malt so that the brewers have a super consistent material that they can use to develop their recipes. And they want to have something that they can rely on that tastes and acts and reacts in the brewery the exact same way every time. So that's the malster's job. And we help with that because we do a lot of the testing on all the new different varieties that are coming in before the large volumes of Those particular barleys end up in the plant. We also develop brand new malt, specialty malts. And when there are new varieties of barley that are being tested by AMBA, the American Malting Barley Association, we are part of that testing to see if these barleys make malting grade and if they become a preferred variety of barley for farmers to grow under AMBA. So we also test those, test malting those, and then we have a small brewery. So we test brewing them too. But of course, the very most fun thing that we do is develop new specialty malt styles because that is where the real creativity for me comes in. That reminds me of developing new recipes for beer from back when I was a brewer.
0: Yeah, we talk about Grant being a kid in a candy store. Terry, I've seen your faces light up in in that cool setup you guys have up there at uh, at Great Western. It's a miniature high-tech malting system and brewery there. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool.
2: So the brewery is one barrel. That way we can scale up what we do pretty quickly to like what what the brewer's size is, just even mentally. And it's flexible. Like you said, we have two kettles. We have both a direct fire kettle and we have a steam kettle. And when we're brewing, we brew one direction or the other direction since those two kettles are on either side of the mash ton. But that way we can mimic what brewers do in their brew house if they have a steam kettle then the other kettle, which is the direct fire kettle, becomes the hot liquor back, and it works quite well. And similarly with our pilot malting unit, it is human scale. It's 150 kilos. When you go out to the big malt plant, the tanks are so large that you're only seeing a portion of each tank at a time, and then you have to go to a different level to see the other portion of these different vessels. And so this human scale really brings the understanding home, and that way when we talk about how malt is made, you know, they get the bigger picture easier that way because of that human scale.
0: Yeah, Grant and I both had to make the, the trip up those stairs on the multi-levels of the malt house. And I'll tell you what, I was gasping for air. It's just, <laughs> it's just massive. If you're afraid of heights, it's, yeah. uh, it's rough. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's dive right in, Terry. Can you give us a quick rundown of how a Munich-style malt is made, specifically Great Western versus other specialty malts?
2: Well, it starts out similarly to other barleys coming in off the field. It generally comes in with about a 10% moisture content. And then the first job you need to do is steep it. And I've been told by the malsters who have more experience than I do that malt is made in the steep. If you don't hit your moisture targets in the steep, you can never catch up in germination. So it goes into our steep vessel. And I'm mostly going to describe what we do in the Malt Innovation Center because those are the vessels that mm. I'm used to. So we put it in the steep vessel, the raw barley. It's already been cleaned, which means that the beards, which are those kind of stocky pieces that come off of each barley kernel, have been removed. And if there's any little rocks or stones coming in off the field, those get removed And any stalks. So the barley's already been cleaned at this point. We put it into the steep vessel, add the water. Now we have a very tricked out pilot malting unit. So we have air for rousing and when the barley is underwater, we rouse with air periodically on a very systematic schedule. So it might be 10 minutes on and 10 minutes off. And the reason why we're doing that is because kernels or seeds breathe oxygen just like we do. And some people will say, but wait, I thought that that plants take in CO2 and give us oxygen. And that is true once they're green and you have photosynthesis going on. But until that time, they breathe air just like we do. So uh, we don't want to drown the little barley kernels. So we will put it under steep for 10 hours, let's say, as an example, and then we'll rouse. And then we will actually drain the tank and just let it rest. And some of the byproducts of steep include heat and carbon dioxide because they're breathing in oxygen like we are. And so during this time that they are resting, we have a fan going. So we are drawing cool, fresh air from outside of the vessel through the tank. And that's to oxygenate it and to keep it it cool, this bed of of wet barley. So it goes under steep two to three times. And during that time, we're trying to reach a moisture level of about 42% at minimum, but 42, 43, 44%. And that takes about two days. At the end of that point, we can move that malting barley, and it's called malt at this time because it's in process, and we'll move it to the germination vessel. And from there, it takes about four more days in the germination vessel. And during that time, well, when you first move it across and it has that moisture level up at about 42 to 44%, if you were to look at a kernel, you see a little nubbin of a rootlet trying to come off of it. And so uh, once it gets the root out, it can take up water easier. Then you want to control the moisture. So you don't want it to be under steep anymore. It would take up moisture too quickly and just get soggy and it wouldn't germinate properly. So we sent it over to germination, which instead of a cylinder conical tank that looks like a broom fermenter, now it's in a bed. And so it's an, in the malt house. It's a large bed called a Saladin bin. And it looks like it's the size of a football field or something. And it has a false bottom and below any false bottom in a malt plant, that space is called a plenum. So while the malt is in the germination vessels, Air is being circulated up through the bottom and it rises through, And but also moist air. So the air is being run through like a bank of these water sprinkling type things that are, so the air is just blown with fans and it picks up tons of moisture and it goes through these beds, these germination beds. And what we're doing is we are trying to replicate the very best growing conditions in any farmer's field. We're trying to make the malt happy and good malt germinates at about the same rate If barley didn't germinate at the same rate, it wouldn't be good malt because you'd have some overgrowth, some undergrowth, and it wouldn't be consistent for malting for brewers or for distillers. So the malt spends about four days in germination. During that time, the rootlets are growing a little longer. So we have to basically turn that malt over on a periodic basis, say every eight hours. Otherwise, the rootlets would tangle And it would become a solid mass. You could never get it out of there. You'd have to chip it out with chainsaws, practically. So every eight hours, we turn the malt so that the roots can detangle and then grow some more. And then we have to detangle them again. By the end of this period, we're at about 44% for sure on moisture. So the most important or one of the most important things that's happening during the germ is that the acrospire is growing. And it is growing to a length of about three quarters to 100% of the length of each kernel. And while it's growing, it has has been activating the natural enzymes in the barley, the same enzymes that brewers are going to use when they mash in to convert starches to sugars. Because the plant is starting to do some conversion of starches to sugars because the plant uses those sugars as food to grow. And so it's kind of unpacking the starches that are so tightly wound Unpacking them as it grows, and that's called modification. And that way, the brewers can get the extract that they need. So, at the end of this germination period, we move the malt over to kilning. So, this is going to be the seventh day. It's going to be the kilning process. And kilning is two stages. One is very low temperature drying, so it's not too much higher than ambient temperature. And you need to dry at a low temperature because if you kilned at a high temperature, you would basically make caramelized sugar. And you'd make crystal malt. And so you would end up with killing all the enzymes in the malt as well. And so it just would be dead. So you have to dry it first, very, very low temperature. That takes some time. And then once it's dropped to about 10% moisture, then you increase the heat. And then you can kiln it off at a higher heat to whatever temperature you want. Now, this is the phase where the malting process comes in. When it's in either at the end of steep or in kiln, You can basically, using time, temperature, and uh, moisture levels, you stew that malt for a little bit. That's how you differentiate between a base malt and a Munich malt, or what I call a Munich style or Munich family of malts. And as Toby said, you're going from about 4 SRM up to generally 30. You could probably go as high as 60, but people don't do that. And it does retain its enzyme package up to a point. You do lose some enzymes in Munich malts. And the darker they are, the less native enzymes they have to self-convert. But you can absolutely use 100% light Munich or 100% regular Munich malt. The dark Munich malt, I have not tried that. So I wouldn't recommend using 100% dark Munich malt. But you could use a blend of, let's say, well, I can give you some anecdotes later. Somebody who did this, but they used a regular Munich malt and the melanoid malt and made a very wonderful dunkel with it. So we do a little bit of that stewing at that point before we actually start the kilning. We just, as I said, it's time, temperature, and moisture. We kind of hold it there, make sure there's plenty of oxygen. And when we are reaching the colors that we want, then at that point, we do our our very, very gentle drying, and then we kiln it. And the kilning is super important in the flavor. I mean, I almost really feel like that's where flavor is made in the malt house is in the kilning process, We've made luft malts or desiccated or what's the other word? basically a dried malt where you basically dry it down with just air, really no heat. And it's kind of flavorless. But if you do the normal drying and then you have your kilning, which is at that curing temperature a little bit higher, and you can get some of these wonderful biscuity type flavors on top of all those complex flavors that that stewing process brought on, then you get some really delicious tasting Munich malt. So Grant, is this making you thirsty?
1: Yes, it is. <laughs> Very <laughs> much so. <laughs> you you sort of answered our next question with that one towards the end there, um, but it was interesting to know about the stewing parts and kind of that, that sounds like what differentiates it from some of the other ways you would make it. So when it comes to to doing this, what are the main attributes you're concerned with when you're malting Munich-style malt? I, I guess you, you've sort of already answered this. Would you say stewing, the stewing step, and then the sort of the kilning Regiment, or is there is there more to it?
2: Yeah, the other thing is that you wouldn't want to use a super duper low protein pilsner style malt barley because protein is a color driver, and it's interesting because when I was a brewer, I did not know that, but protein's a color driver, and so you want more. Pro- I mean, it still has to be within specifications for malt and grade barley, but you want something that's closer to the higher end of that spec because you want to drive the color. And if you were to try to make, let's say a dark Munich with a Pilsner style barley with a super low, low protein, you would have a Dickens of a time driving those colors and color is related to flavor. I mean, no one's ever like drawn a graph to see if it's exponential in any way or anything, at least not that I know of. But, you know, if you have a higher colored malt, you actually are going to get more flavor. It just goes hand in hand. And a part of that is the longer stewing process and possibly a slightly higher stewing temperature. I don't remember off the top of my head like what the malt plant does, but definitely it's going to be longer and it could be slightly higher temperature. But then you're, like you said, your kilning regimen is going to be different. You still need to dry it super gently to try to preserve that enzyme package. But then when you bring up the temperature in the kiln and you're trying to reach those colors, flavor is being developed every second that you're developing the color.
0: You mentioned Great Western has three different Munich style malts in that portfolio. Can you give us uh, just a quick overview on them and kind of what makes each of them different?
2: So anyway, at the low end, we have our light Munich. And then we have our standard Munich, which we've had forever. And that's about 10 SRM, basically. And then our dark Munich is 20 SRM. And in this Munich family, you could go all the way up to 60 SRM. So the Light Munich, you know what, that malt would be awesome with today's emphasis and trend toward the lighter colored beers, especially with the lagers. So if you want just a touch of color, want to make kind of an Oktoberfest, it's kind of a light Oktoberfest. Heck, you could use 100% Light Munich in your Oktoberfest beer. In fact, when do people start brewing Oktoberfest? Probably in August or something. Right now, Um, Right now, oh my <laughs> gosh! But that, you know, actually, Oktoberfest beer is awesome year round. Any time of year is a, a great time to drink an Oktoberfest. But that would make an excellent light-colored Oktoberfest in my mind. Traditionally, it was probably brewed with something more like a standard Oktoberfest. But that's gonna if you were to brew your Oktoberfest with a hundred percent, say, ten SRM Munich malt, you would get a darker color, and it would be a beautiful, deep kind of coppery color but people seem to really be interested in those paler beers right now. So the light is good for that, but the Munich is going to give you more flavor and more color. Because remember, they're related hand in hand, they're cousins. And then for the dark Munich, let's say that you wanted that intensity of a Munich character, but you wanted it as just a component in one of your specialty malts that you're using in a particular beer, then you might want to use something like a dark Munich. I personally have not tested it using it a hundred percent. So I don't recommend that. I can't recommend that until I test that. And I haven't.
0: Well, Terry, uh, great Western has two malt houses, one in Vancouver, Washington, and one in Pocatello, Idaho, two, obviously separate areas, different elevations, a lot of different factors going on, which malt house, if you can share produces great Western's Munich. And why is that particular malt house better suited to making this style of malt?
2: The Great Western Malt House has been in the same location in the port of Vancouver for 87 years at this point. It was started right after. In fact, (laughs) we're kind of renegades. Prohibition had not yet been repealed, but some local business people who were basically the siblings of the local brewing companies that had been shut down colluded and said, let's build a malt plant. There was none in the West, which is why they made the name Great Western Malting Company. But they were like, but after 13 years of Prohibition, we don't know if people even like beer anymore. Maybe nobody to going to want to drink it. So they had, before Prohibition ended, they had to go and contract with farmers and say, will you please grow some barley? We'll give you some money, even though we don't have a business. And so they had to contract with barley like a year in advance, hoping that Prohibition was going to be repealed. It's really a fascinating story. And so they were officially founded just five months after Prohibition was repealed because you know they, they had to form that company in time for the... For the crop harvest, <laughs> and so it is an older malt plant. But what's beautiful about that is that we have multiple malt houses that were built at different times in history, and they are unique to their time period. And so that means they're unique for different styles of beer. And that's in Vancouver, and I'll come back to that in a second. Now, Pocatello Malt House is much, much newer. Uh, oh, one was built in I think the 80s. I, I can't remember right now, and the other one just was built like a year or two ago. And they are very, very, very modern malt houses. The beauty of having these multiple types of beds at the Vancouver plant is that you could say, well, this type of malt is best made in that bed. And this other type of malt is best made in a different type of bed. So we can pick and choose whatever is best for the actual malt. And that allows us to have a crazy diversity of different specialty malts we can basically invent based on our equipment. And so that's just so fun. So um, one of our beds, you can call it, it actually has five beds. It's called the Flexi House, one of our malt houses. We have four malt houses, if you include the Malt Innovation Center, three if you don't include the Malt Innovation Center. One of them is called the Flexi House, and it has five beds in it. And it's a really unique house because it's called the Flexi House because it's flexible. It does both the germination and the kilting right in the same bed. And that is ideally suited because you can stew to your heart's content on these Munich malts and hit exactly the targets that you're looking for. And then you can turn the warm moist air that's going through, take off the moisture and start slowly drying it and getting ready, you know, kind of even extend that process a little bit into the drying phase and then just do it like you need to do it, which is the low temperature drying and then bring up the temperature and kiln it to the final color that you want. Final color and flavor.
1: Makes sense. Two different malt houses, and then you get the best of both worlds.
2: Oh, for sure.
1: <laughs> the Munich really shines there out of Vancouver with just the, the geographical location and the air moisture and that sort of thing as well. Very cool. It's funny, like brewers all, a lot of them obsess about like low protein, high extract. But for something like a Munich malt, it's not always
0: desirable to have that set up. You actually
1: want that protein for the color development and the flavor. So.
0: Well, I can tell you what we've seen. And, and as we all know, everybody on the call here, we, we've seen challenges with uh, logistics and freight and ocean and all that stuff. And unfortunately, what used to be 120 days to get a container of malt from Europe is taking like 190 plus. So, and then plus with kind of the, the light switch of uh, breweries coming back online as fingers crossed COVID is, is dwindling away. It's tough to continue a very uh, consistent supply of imported malts. And this this light Munich malt that Terry and Grant were mentioning has has been a really good go to domestic option for a lot of our brewer customers that that need some more consistent supply. So that product has definitely been a success, Terry, and, and uh, thanks thanks to to you and the team.
1: The last question we always ask our guests, and I and I feel like you've been asked this before when you were on the show uh, last year. What beer or other related beverage, whiskey, or even or even non alcoholic, what are you enjoying lately, and why?
2: I've been enjoying the beer from Portland's smallest breweries you know, there's a lot of really small guys who guys and gals, whatever breweries that during the pandemic really were, were forcing to pivot to package because they can't, they couldn't run their little tap houses anymore. And so we have two fridges now and a full size fridge is full of all the tiny brewery beers. So that's what we've been doing. It's just like we got to support the smallest people because the smallest breweries we have felt because they're the closest to the edge of not being able to get through this pandemic. And we need to all band together. And I figure the more well-known brands of beer that other people might be aware of them, or they may have a favorite. So we've been taste really getting into like all sorts of new beers that we've never had before because some of these breweries were tap rooms and We don't necessarily get out that much and everybody was drinking at home. So basically every tiny brewery that delivered, we bought from them. And every brewery that doesn't deliver, we tried to pick up. And there's a lot of breweries in this town. So we would just try to get a mixed case from each of them. So, you know, I don't think I've hardly had the same beer twice. I can't really say Uh, (laughs) that we've had just such a variety. And you get a lot of good ones to choose from there in Portland. Yeah, so much fun. It's like, well, what do we want tonight? A Baltic Porter, or, you know, or Triple Hop Cezanne or whatever. Oh, wow. You really mix
1: it up then. Okay.
2: (laughs) So (laughs) Portland is anything is possible with beer in Portland. I mean, there's so many beers in Portland. We, we have not been able to collect one of every single one, but we've tried to just do mixed cases of all this stuff all the time. And the pandemic is mostly being over now. We can go to the grocery store again and things like that instead of getting groceries delivered. But we're almost kind of hooked now on having an entire fridge filled with tiny breweries beers that are all local. That's what we've been into.
0: Very, very good. Well, hey, Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've been a wealth of knowledge, and uh, we always enjoy having you on the show. Thanks for uh, giving the listeners a little bit of background about you know Great Western, what you do, and particularly the, the Munich style. So thanks so much. I appreciate your time.
2: You're quite welcome.
0: That was awesome info from uh, Terry Farendorf. Now on to our next special guest today. It is Betsy Roberts, the malting quality manager over at our friends at Brees Malting. And Betsy, we have not had the opportunity to meet, but you sent your bio over and it's pretty impressive. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: So my background by degree uh, is in food science and biochemistry. And I actually started my malting career in both kind of lab quality roles, as well as some production experience with Anheuser-Busch's malting division. And kind of around that same time frame, I was fortunate enough to be able to work at the USDA Cereal Crops Research Unit down in Madison who anybody that's in the malt industry is very familiar with the work that they do, especially with AMBA and New Variety Development. So kind of in that mix, I did have a little bit of time that I spent in a quality role with, within the food industry. I actually made jams and jellies for, for a few years, but then came to Brees in 2009 to kind of continue my, my molten career and join the technical team. And since I've been with Breeze for the past 12 years, I've certainly been able to expand my, you know, range of knowledge and experience in a lot of different areas of specialty malt production, including, you know, learning about raw material selection and evaluation, as well as different technologies that we have available to us and that we've had for a long time in the production of small batch specialty malts as well as our our roasting and packaging division. So kind of a a range of things that I've been able to experience. And like you said, my current position is as the quality manager for our malting group.
0: That's awesome to have you on the show. So thanks for coming on. Terry did a fabulous job you know, giving us a rundown of kind of the the Munich style malt versus other specialties from bringing the barley into the malt house. But anything else or anything specific that y'all do on the Brie side specific to uh, production of Munich versus uh, other specialty malts?
3: Yeah, Terry did give a, a really nice rundown. So Munich-type malts in general can be thought of as kind of a group that have also been referred to as high-dried malts, which is kind of a category where we're looking at heat treatments that are applied to those malts that give them lower levels of active enzymes. And when we make them, we're more focusing on making sure we get the color target as well as the, the complex flavor development that happens during that killing process, You know, accessing all those milliard pathways that are create all the colors and flavors that we love in our Munich malts. So here at Brees, our main goal of production of any of the Munich style malts that we make, it kind of starts with steeping, as she said. Any maltster, we're, we're always trying to make sure we get hom- homogenous moisture uptake during that steeping process to get good activation of the embryo in that grain and, and get those enzymes active. And you know, targeting a little bit higher, steep up moisture just to make sure we have enough vigor of that barley so that we can get enough growth by the end of our fourth day of germination to give us those precursors that are absolutely necessary to create the colors and flavors that a Munich style malt is best known for. So after we kind of put it through the, the germination process, again, promoting the breakdown of those proteins and starches to get those amino acids and sugars available, all those precursor compounds... We get into that kilning step to kind of set the stage, you know, where where the real magic happens really when we're making our Munich malts. Our main goal is to kind of modify our time temperature combinations, whether we're making our kind of lightest Munich style malt, which would be like our Ashburn mild malt, which is around five or six SRM, up to our dark Munich 30 malt, which is a, a 30 SRM. We kind of pull those levers and and change those criteria in different ways to both preserve enough moisture to have at the end of that lower, called we have a double deck kilns throughout all of our facilities, but kind of preserve enough moisture when we get to that lower deck of the kiln so that when we hit it with some of those high temperatures, we have enough moisture and precursor available to get an exponential color development curve. I guess maybe contrary to what some people might think, the color development on a kiln isn't completely linear. Usually it's, like I said, more exponential. So once we get to a certain moisture content on that lower deck, you might think you have nothing left, but then all of a sudden your color development will take off and kind of take an exponential path. So those are the kinds of things that we are really looking at on the kilning process.
1: Very cool. Yeah. Interesting to know about the the double deck kilns. You touched on a lot there, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about, I guess, the, the different Munich style malts in your portfolio. You mentioned you threw uh, the Ashburn mild in there and, you know, I wasn't off the top of my head. I didn't group that as a, as a Munich, but I guess it's just like an incredibly light Munich kind of sounds like what you're getting at.
3: Yeah, because uh, the range on it is is between a five five and six SRM. So I guess looking at kind of the other malt styles that are out there from other maltsters, it seems like it could kind of fit in that category. But again, on the very the, the lighter end of the the spectrum. But it, it's got kind of the mildest flavor profile of the Munich malts. A lot of light cracker and biscuit notes um, with some honey notes as well. And I know that product was actually developed based on the desire of one of our big customers to have something similarly, I think to what Terry had said, kind of in that in-between range of a, between a a pale style malt or a a darker pale styled malt and a a regular traditional Munich malt, if you would call it.
1: I guess I just never put two and two together, but that's, uh, it's neat to know that, that the Ashburn is, you know, when I think of Ashburn mild, I think of brewing like an English mild beer. So the Ashburn is, is it stewed? Like it's, everything is similar to, to the rest of your Munich lineup, like the Bonlander and...
3: Yep, it it kind of follows that same idea in terms of right wanting to preserve some of that moisture by doing recirculation with our with the moist air, getting that that kind of stewing step and keeping the moisture content a little bit higher. It's just the finishing temperatures Our temperature and time of that that finishing step is just a little bit different. Got it. Very cool. So I guess kind of the next product in that lineup for Brees would be the uh, Bonlander Munich Malt 10, and that's a, a 10 SRM. I guess what you would most people would probably consider a more traditional. Munich malt style, hydride style malt. It does have enough remaining enzyme potential to be able to self-convert with the proper mash profile. And it's got a lot of really nice round cracker notes, baked honey, graham cracker, raw sugar. So that's one of my favorite malts is just our our regular standard Munich style malt.
1: And that's the Bonlander?
3: Yep. Yep. The Bonlander malt and then i guess just kind of moving on up in the in the uh, srm range our next darkest product beyond that is our aromatic munich malt 20 which is a 20 srm that's just kind of a more intense munich style malt you know just again it's that time temperature combination just going that extra time further to develop that that color at the end it's just again a more intense um, darker bread crust toast flavors but enzyme levels would be a little bit lower on that product just because of that additional heat application. So, probably need some type of base malt to convert, probably would not be able to self convert, but just would give that all that, that malt or that uh, more intense flavor.
1: Wanted to jump in there since you're on the aromatic Munich already. So, that, that name, um, aromatic, I, over the years of, of doing this at Country Malta, I've seen a, f- a few brewers kind of confused and, and wonder like, is it actually a Munich? Is it not? But it sounds like you're dispelling that here in one swoop. So it it is very much a Munich, absolutely. Why did Brees choose the the name Aromatic to go onto it?
3: A little history on that is, originally, when Brees started making specialty malts within the U.S., they wanted to kind of meet the need of, you know, a wide range of brewers. So they actually started primarily with six-row barley, domestic six-row barley grown in the U.S., and they produced all their specialty malts using that six-row barley because of its availability. And then kind of as, as time went on into the 80s and the 90s, you know, the notion started to come up that brewers were maybe seeking out two row made specialty malts, maybe to be more in line with what European maltsters were doing, maybe because potential for extract differences or more consistency within the two row barley supply chain, whatever that reason was exactly. But there was definitely, you know, as a company, we noticed that there was a customer demand to have two row options too. So in order to kind of differentiate those two product lines, we had our six-row product line that was just had the word Munich in it. So our six-row Munich was Munich Malt 10. And then our two-row Munich was Bonlander Munich Malt 10. And then the aromatic name, again, was just to be sort of a descriptor of that more intense malt character. And it's really functioned as more of a flavor contributor. So the aromatic was the two-row version of a Munich Malt 20. That's kind of the history of where that name came from.
1: Yeah, that makes sense when you when you spell it out like that. It's I get sort of originally it was to be a little bit more in line with like European naming, right? And that's that makes perfect sense. Right. Yep. Metz,
0: can you tell us a little bit about kind of the malt house design, if you will, and kind of batch size of your Munich production? I know Terry mentioned that you know the flexibility and the uniqueness of uh, their Vancouver plant bodes really well with the Munich style malt.
3: Brees has a, f- a few locations. Our original location is in Chilton, and that facility has been used since the late 60s, early 70s by Brees to produce, again, those, those American specialty malts. And we were fortunate enough to add on the Manitowoc facility, which allows us the flexibility of batch sizes. We have produced our entire portfolio of Munich-type malts at, at any of the malt houses over the years and really the reason we would kind of, you know, select any specific area would be based on the the scale, the size of batch that we really need of something, as well as the ability to make sure that we can achieve the consistency that we need of different product types within those kiln systems. So it kind of just go, comes down to maybe the the ability to control or be able to get those, you know, that heat application in the way that we want it to be in those different systems. So it kind of is a mixture of all those different things that would contribute to our choice in what size of kiln
0: and which type of kiln we would produce those different mall types. Y'all juggle a lot of different unique products and specialties. I mean, you think, Breeze, you typically think a lot, a wide range of specialty products. So it's, uh, yeah, it seems like putting a puzzle together with all the pieces and figuring out what the best course of action is for each product. So very cool.
1: Right, right always impressed by the amount of uh special, like whenever I think of specialty malts, I breeze definitely jumps, jumps first to mind is just the amount that uh, you guys put out. It's impressive. And we had, we had Bob on, on a past podcast and, uh, he was telling me, that, like you just said a moment ago, that Brees once upon a time would make every specialty in six row and two row. That just that just blows me away. Like, <laughs>
3: the, it was you know, a lot of
1: items. impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you yeah. really got to have your ducks in a row to just pull that off consistently. So.
3: Right. But yeah, we certainly do kind of run the gamut of unique specialty type products and, and lots of different unique flavors. One thing that, you know, has really allowed us to. I guess, dial in our process and have a better consistency and repeatability with both the color development and qualifying our flavors for our malts has been Breece's role in the creation and approval of two different ASBC methods, both the rapid color method and the hot steep sensory method. So the creation of those processes really was rooted in our desire to make sure that, you know, when we're making, we're we're in the kiln and we're in the process of, you know, working up to those final colors of those Munich style malts that we can consistently hit our target every single time. And the only way to do that in that sort of environment is to have accessible tools and easy to use processes that can, that an operator can take that sample and then run that result themselves and make sure, okay, yep, I'm, I'm hitting my target. And then the same thing with the hot steep. We had the, the ability then to take a tea kettle, essentially, and come up with a consistent and repeatable way to prep a, a hot wort sample that you can then do sensory on pretty much anywhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like more or less you guys wrote, wrote the book, basically, on, on the, the standards, on some of these new standards. So, right. really cool. We ran through these um, pretty quickly, but I think we missed one of your um, Munich malts from earlier. I, I don't think we hit on your 30L. Can you tell us about that? It's a pretty new one for you guys, relatively new one for you guys.
3: Yeah, we developed that within the last two years, two or three years it's been. And really, uh, the the intention of that product was to create the most intense dark maillard flavors, pretzel, brown sugar, really get the most intense version of a Munich malt that we could possibly get. And we had kind of targeted that around that 30 SRM range. So again, obviously, because of its treatment on the kiln, it doesn't have very much uh, enzyme content remaining at the end of its, its cycle. So definitely would need to get converted with a uh, base malt. But it was kind of what we called the malt bomb. We wanted <laughs> we wanted the most most malt flavor we could possibly get in a product. And, and that's kind of what it became. So
1: Yeah, malt bomb indeed. It's funny, it's funny <laughs> the first thing that you mentioned is pretzel as the flavor, because that's what I was
3: going to say that I get out of it. Yeah, that was definitely on our, our flavor map. So I, I was
1: brewing a Dunkel and I, I went a little heavy with it. Probably this is right when that 30L came out and um, it came out more as a Schwartz beer, but uh, man, it was a crowd pleaser. People really dug it.
3: Good. Yeah. It's, it's super complex and interesting and in, in different beers that I've had too.
0: So Betsy, uh, lastly, what, what are you drinking these days? What are you enjoying?
3: You know, with the summer kind of being in full swing now, I've been looking for nice sessionable sours Found a couple of them that I really like from a couple local places here in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and I'm kind of on the the lower alcohol bandwagon. Everybody's making a light a light version of a beer now, and I kind of like trying all iterations
0: of it. What do they call them down here in the South, Grant? Lawnmower beers or lawnmower? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. lawnmower beers. beers. Sure, I've heard that. When I was younger, I remember my dad literally mowing the yard with a beer. It was it's crazy. Yeah, I don't blame him. You know, it's hot out, so. It wasn't a, a you know, I craft beer by any means, but he enjoyed it. <laughs> All good.
3: Yeah. Times have changed, I guess. <laughs> I, I
0: sure have. Yeah. He had one of those, you know, one of those plastic, uh, like baseball hats where you've got the kind of the, <laughs> the drink holders on each side with the straws attached to it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey Betsy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I appreciate your time coming on with this and uh, make it a fantastic day. And uh, hopefully we can uh, touch base soon and meet in person. So thanks again for your time.
1: Yes.
3: Sounds great. Thanks
0: Thank for you coming
1: both. on. It was good having a, a fellow food scientist on as well. <laughs>
3: yeah, I know. That's right,
1: Grant. There's only <laughs> a couple that? of
3: us, I think, that crossed over to yeah. the to the dark side. <laughs> to the dark <laughs> Maybe side. Not, but <laughs> yeah.
0: well, uh, well, hopefully we can have you on again in the future. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Betsy. Thanks. All right. Good info so far. I know it's late over in Germany, so I really appreciate uh, this next guest sticking around. Jessica Kurik is uh, the best malt. Technical Support and Quality Assurance Manager. Jessica, did I pronounce your last name right? Gurik?
4: You gave your best. So I think <laughs> it's okay. It's a really hard name. It's called Gurik. Yeah. Like, yeah.
0: <laughs> Gurik. Okay, fun. I got gotcha. you.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I did my best. Yeah.
0: Jessica, thanks so much for coming on. I, I've i had the pleasure of, uh, or at least you given some technical presentations or, or uh, you know, education to our sales group in the past. So happy to have you on. Tell the listeners about yourself, kind of what you do now with, with Best Maltz over in Germany.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm part of the Best Malts team since spring 2020. And I'm a beer brewer since uh, 2016. And I worked in both small breweries and huge breweries just to get the feeling of, um, of my industry. And um, I also commissioned and programmed breweries all over the world. And also, for example, in California. And um, this knowledge helped me to become a more and more focused brewer on technical innovations and changes in breweries and malt houses. And that's why I became part of the technical support and quality assurance at Best Malt.
0: And every time we have a guest join us from overseas, I'm always impressed with the quality of phone calls these days. I mean, the audio is just unreal. Back when we were younger, half the time you're talking to somebody from overseas, it sounds like you're talking to them through one of those cans with the strings attached.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <but> it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, you, you sound great, yeah. but
0: thanks, Jessica, for giving us a little uh, background on yourself.
4: Yeah, for sure.
1: Let's jump into it. You know, our last two guests covered it pretty well, but it's awesome just to hear. I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't have like Germans on to talk about Munich malt, right? Like this is, um, it's important. So can you tell us uh, some kind of your philosophy and, and what Best best Malt does for their their Munich molds?
4: I would love to, because like for all our molds, best molds has various recipes uh, for our different products, but these are strictly confidential and part uh, that's of our fine. heritage understand. as a traditional family business. But in general, um, I can say that Munich mold is considered a base mold here and is manufactured in a traditional steeping germination, kirning process, but with a higher temperature profile and put, built in a, to build up a darker color like described by Terry and Betsy, really understandable and accurate. And we also have some special things in our uh, malt houses, like we have two steeping system and a double aerating system. So the result is that we get a really homogeneously hydrated and clean barley as a base for further processing. And while germination, we have two systems. We have a lost man system. It's like a moving batch morting with connected kiln. Or we have uh, the saladine system where screw turners are preventing growing together barley. And I think someone mentioned our roasting system before, right?
0: Yeah, it was me just briefly.
4: Yeah, yeah we have a gender fluid bed roasting and that's kind of... So the malt is kind of floating on hot air and has no contact to the vessels. And after a lot of testing, we found that the malt is much less astringent after
0: those systems. I will 100% agree. Grant and I, I believe Grant. Yeah, I've chewed you. on it. We, we, we've actually you know, had the <laughs> stuff that we've been the lucky few that have been able to try that stuff. And uh, it's really, really good. The roasted stuff, we should have stateside here i don't know about august yeah sneak peeks uh, for anyone listening really good stuff yeah the the way this this fluid bed roaster works is is pretty cool and uh definitely uh it's very homogenous and yeah very very little astringency with such uh high color roasted malts
1: you made some um some key uh, differentiations there versus versus kind of our american counterparts so the malting system you have the the lossman street and then on top of that there was one other thing, but it eludes me. But for people listening um, out there, can you can you walk us through? I, I think a lot of American brewers listening, unless they've done the the malting program with the IBD, they probably don't know what a lostman street is. Can you can you walk us through that continuous process?
4: So the Lossman process is actually pretty easy. So in the saladin system, you just have a box and you're filling it with um, your crop, and uh, then you're turning it with your screw turners, right? And you are watering it, and then everything goes into the kiln. So in the lastman system, you have like small boxes, so you have small batches and they are wandering. So like they are moving on the ground um, forward to the kiln. And the the first part of the Laman system is filled with the fresh from this steeping system coming crop. and then after some days, it's going forward and forward and forward. So you can be pretty fast in reacting to what the the malt is needing at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's that's very neat. You know, it's just something that you don't see over here. So I'm kinda I'm kinda geeking out about it. But in brewing terms that most people listening would probably understand, it's like the salad in is kind of like batch sparging and then the the Lostman Street would be more like fly sparging, right? It's a continuous process.
4: Yes, yes. But also in Germany, it's a pretty old school system. So nearly nobody has it anymore because it's it's eating a lot of um, money in form of electricity and heat and, and stuff. Right.
1: Gotcha. But yeah, just a neat traditional process, though. So your Munich malt is made through the Lossmann Street. Can you talk about the different Munich malts and best malts lineup?
4: It's not so different from all our other barley-based malt varieties. So our high-quality German turo barley has to be part in the Berlin program. And we also keep an eye on the low moisture content and ideal protein content range and high germination capability. And that's actually all.
1: Well, yeah, you know, there's still some nuances there, right? Like you're, you're going to have different barley varietals than, than we have in the States. So you're talking about the Berlin program. And I know that Best malls is all spring two-row. So. Yeah. Yeah. But another thing that you mentioned that it's kind of old hat to me, but I'll just go ahead and talk about it is it sounds like in Germany that Munich malt is just considered a base malt. And that's just not the case here. Like we, we kind of consider it as a specialty malt, but um, okay. getting the diastatic power for your mash out of a really heavy um, addition of like a like what we would call a light Munich is not unusual in Germany. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, that's correct. Totally.
0: I just want to jump back to, I, I don't think we kind of went in depth or had Jessica talk about how many different Munich style malts they produce. I I think we, you know, at least over here stateside, we've got the regular Munich malt, the dark Munich malt. And then you guys have a a couple of uh, caramel Munichs, correct?
4: Yeah, that's correct. So we have the normal Munich malt and the um, dark Munich malt. And then we also have caramel Munich malt one, two, and three. They have all different colors and different tastes, of course. And um, I really love them. When it comes to Bock beers, for example, and um, some sort the the best Caramel Munich 3, for example, tastes like roasted almonds and dark bread. And, and the Caramel Munich 1 tastes more like almonds and dates. And I really love the variety of that because everything is natural right and and i really love that about our mold because no additives are in it and and you have so much what you can do with just one thing and a little bit temperature and hydration and stuff so it's not much but in the end it gives the beer everything it needs right
1: for sure yeah I see what you're saying, like in terms of when you're calling it naturally, just the range of flavors that a malt can give you. Is, yeah. it's pretty impressive. Like yeah, totally the fruity flavors, like you were saying of like, I think you mentioned fig, but then like the nutty flavors too, of like roasted almonds. Is That's just what keeps me coming back for more.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really frets me that it's a complete natural process. And at least in Germany. But you can do this color spectrum of all our caramel um, Munich malts and also the Munich mall, right?
0: For sure. Well, can you walk us through the the German or continental European philosophy, so to speak, of using Munich malten beers? I know, you know, we mentioned that Munich is considered a base over there. But for example, many American craft brewers use Munich malts in just about any style, pale ales, IPAs, etc. It just doesn't matter. American brewers don't really follow any Rules for the use of Munich malt. It's different in Germany, I'm assuming. And, and how do you typically see German or European brewers using the Munich malt?
4: So, this is an, an interesting topic because in Germany, we still have a lot of brew pubs, bars, and restaurants that only have two beers on tap. In North America, I've seen like 20 or more beers on <laughs> top.
2: <laughs> At least. And, yeah.
4: um, so, German beer drinkers like to stick to their local habits and when drinking beer out of their homes. And therefore, the market is not requesting as much variety in any given outlet. Typically, in a German pub in Bavaria, for instance, we'll have an Helles and a an Dunkles. Both beers are brewed with either 100% Pilsner malt or 100% Munich malt. And oftentimes, these standard beers are completed by a third special brew for a certain season, like Bock beer or Märzen or Oktoberfest beer. It's not unusual for some of the established brew pubs to use the same old recipes for 100 years or more. These are kept as a secret and handed down from generation to generation. And the correct mixture of our best malt, for example, is of course the integral part of the secret. And German culture and food habits are closely linked to beer. You know, we fiddle around with a lot of things, but not with our German beer. So we have kind of strict rules how our beer needs to look and how to taste. (laughs) So we don't mix everything together.
0: Gosh, we, in America, we do piddle around a lot, you know, we just we, 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 mess, we, we mess things up, right? We, we just we, we overcomplicate to, things. That's right. We tweak <laughs> everything. and
1: gosh. We use six different malts in a grist or something, <laughs> it's, you know, in Germany, from, from my understanding, it's like one, maybe two.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I really love that you guys in the U.S. are more experimental when it comes to beer. Like we have our strict rules and we can't get out of those corsets because then we lose our customers because they are don't understand what we are doing then when we try to mix something and, and invent something new um this is pretty cool that your country
1: yeah i always like to kind of compare and contrast the two i, I think it's neat you know of all the beers that i've grown it, it tends to be like the simpler the simpler ones are tend to be what i keep going back to so over the years i've definitely move to using a lot less different ones in, in, in one recipe it, that way you can really hone in on the flavor of a particular malt is the way I feel about it so yeah I mean that kind of leads me into my next question I got some uh, questions for you about Oktoberfest is coming up so last year's was canceled with COVID unfortunately and it seems like there was some discussion this year about whether or not they would hold it but it seems this year is canceled as well but we're hopeful for twenty twenty two. Am I right there? I just did a cursory read of the news on that. Oh, you are right. Okay, well that's a, that's a huge bummer because I mean, for it's such a great like uh, tradition in Bavaria there, and and I've been one time, and I would love to go back. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I want to ask you some questions about the way the breweries in Germany do their Oktoberfest. You know, I kind of have it in, in my mind how how it's done, and um, I want to see if I'm if I'm correct or not. So you mentioned Martzen. I'll just break down my basic understanding of it. So pre-1970, your German Oktoberfests are going to kind of be darker in color and maybe use some more Munich. And at least American craft brewers would call that a a Marzen, I would say, commonly. And then really what the the modern day Oktoberfest or or Fest beers, you would call it, it tends to be like lighter than that, but still darker than a Helles. Is that, am I close here? Am am I
4: It's hard to say because most of the recipes from breweries are tightly held secret and uh, Munich breweries, for example, um, the Augustina and all those other breweries that are part of the Oktoberfest beer have a pretty aggressive lawyers watching <laughs> out globally for abuse <laughs> sure, in the name sure. of Oktoberfest. And I'm not aware that any Munich brewery would ever disclose details of their brewmaking. Naturally, we must be part of their gameplay because um, when they order the ingredients from us, we have to protect the trade secrets, and not only in Munich, but also in other places around the world. So we can just guess, but I'm not allowed to say anything about that. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> That's sorry. That's fine.
1: It's okay. You don't have to, to name drop the, the yeah. breweries or anything, but yeah, can you shed some light on the...
4: Yeah, so what I can say is that in our last best Brew challenge. We asked more than two hundred participants to brew a uh, fest beer style beer, and for, and for the competition, we asked more than uh, we asked those brewers to use best caramel Munich two. And by the way, the winner was a small local brew pub called Rhein who made an extraordinary beer, which really impressed our beer sommelier jury, and therefore it's proven that caramel Munich two can make some hell of a great fest beer.
1: Okay. So I'm guessing they use something heavy like the Heidelberg or a like a Pilsner style malt, and then just a little bit of the or or some smaller proportion of caramel Munich too is what it sounds like.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, (laughs) 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 Uh,
1: that's fair. (laughs) Leave leave her alone, Grant. Sorry, (laughs) I'm always trying to get to the get to the bottom of it. Right, like I just. You know, I, I read the brewing literature here, but uh, yeah, I guess I'm just on a quest for truth. Yeah, so. I
4: feel your excitement and I, I'm really, really sorry. It's fine. It's okay.
1: You're poking the bear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, brewing literature talks about dark Munich, Munich 2 for use in alt beer, box, doppel box. It sounds like you've already kind of answered that with a yes. But um, is that, generally speaking, is that where you would, you would say you see the most? You're dark Munich, so what Americans here would just call our standard Munich 10. You tend to see that in Germany, you tend to see that in styles like alt beer box, doppel box, and less so in like fest beer.
4: Yeah, that's uh, totally um, true. And we don't see it so often, like more in um, season beers, like um, Winterbock or something, like when it's getting cold and everybody is excited for the season to drink Winterbock then, and therefore they are using those modes. But it's, it's not that common here.
1: Gotcha. So, one thing that we're seeing here, at least among American craft brewers, is somewhat of a decline in using like drum turned crystal malts, which is probably plays to, to your favor since you guys have a, a different system. Is there anything you'd like to add to that discussion? Why would you think that, I know we're going out on a limb here, why would you think that American brewers or craft brewers in general are turning more to like high dry, as we call them, options versus drum turned crystals lately?
4: So, crystal malts have a long and impressive tradition in the UK, right? So sure undergoes the complete biochemical transformation from starch to sugar because it is made of green mold that is held wet and then it is loaded into a roasting drum and fired relatively high temperatures and the goal is to replace the endosperm with the sweet clear liquid and uh, you must take care not to add too much crystal mold to the grain bill because that could cause notes. But of course, too much caramel malt may certainly be overwhelming in thickness and full bodiness when overused in the grist. So, using high dry options can give a more balanced and lighter initial taste and have maybe a higher enzyme capacity. I'm not sure about that.
1: Yeah. Sounds like the uh, the opinions are, are pretty in line there. It just it gives you a, like a lighter taste, and l- mm-hmm. less of a less of a sweetness. And that's sh- for whatever reason, that just kind of seems how yeah. a lot of craft brewers are going. You know, I, I think my best guess at it is at least here here in the U.S. You you have these wild adjunct beers that are using fruit purees and all these different sweet associated flavors. And I think that the beer sales are moving more towards these uh drier more i guess just traditional beer flavors and less of a of a kind of a candy sweetness that's that's my take on it,
4: mm, it sounds fair yeah
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and then terry brought up a great point too it probably these high dry malts like munich just they seem to play better with hops yeah, especially like long term mm-hmm. in the package so I was wondering if you guys see any of that there, but it's hard to say because crystal malts, just in general, drum turn crystals, are, are they're not big in Germany. Is that yeah? Is that we
4: nearly never see them here somewhere, so I don't know any brewery that is using crystal malts.
0: Gotcha. As we talked about a little bit, Jessica, and mentioned, and we all know right now there's shipping delays worldwide for a variety of reasons, but import, export is putting a strain on German and European malt supply overall into the US. I will say that our vendor partners, Best Malts, has done a really, really good job of combating that along with our procurement team at Country Malt Group. But we we do hear of our competitors bringing in imported malt have really, really struggled. So much so that they've you know, said, hey, we can't supply anyone malt for the next two, three, four months. So Best Malts has probably seen an uptick in production in the last couple of months, just based on the amount of malt you export, not only the U.S., but several different countries. Well, several, a lot of different countries. How has Best Malts combated the challenges logistically and production for that matter? It's kind of like, like I said, a a light switch turning on. And secondly, do you think there's a light at the end of the tunnel? Are we going to continue to have some challenges going forward?
4: Yes, I think there's a light on a tunnel. The world is pretty imbalanced right now. So some of the most important cargo hubs in the world are still badly affected by COVID-19. And we have great local partners who act highly professional in their local markets. And the team in Germany and North America, as you said, are in close contact. And we know each other pretty well and have respect for each other's contribution and that certainly helps with those difficult times, right? When everybody gives their best and eventually container shortage will be managed. And on the other hand, climate change and other megatrends will affect all businesses sooner or later. So we must all and will constantly adapt to those changes and restructure our processes. But if you want to brew a, a great beer with best malts, of course you get it. So we, we will make sure you get best miles <laughs> in the US.
0: <laughs> great response. <laughs> I read an article, Grant, you may have seen this, but just the overall challenges of the market, and, and I could be wrong here, but the article stated that there was only two manufacturers of the actual shipping containers, new shipping containers, and they were both out of China. That being said, with the shortage of containers, you think about a container is not one way, right? It's fluid throughout the entire world, right? And there's only so many so many of them floating around right now. And if there's more and more need for containers in the limited manufacturing companies that produce these things, it puts a real strain on it. And then not only Almost that, like a currency really—that's right, supply and demand. Yeah, yeah. totally. And then you've got the ports obviously are completely backed up and you, it's not like they can, you know, build an, ex, an expansion on their facility in a week or two. So right. it's just a lot of things all at once, but putting a strain on it. But I, I would say Best Malls has done a fantastic job along with, with our other import um, providers or import partners, if you will. But another, another shout out to our procurement group, as Jessica mentioned, our two groups work very closely together and We've had some challenges, but but just that open line of communication and the, kind of the, the history of our two businesses together is, has really helped mitigate the challenges there.
4: Yeah, totally.
0: Last question. What beer or other beverage are you currently enjoying? You know, what's interesting, and I've mentioned this b- before, is we've had brewers on that don't drink a lot of beer. They're brewing it all the time and they prefer, you know, whiskey or they drink wine. So what are you enjoying these days?
4: So... At all, I don't drink wine or whiskey or something. I just really just drink beer. Excellent. <laughs> um, so after a long day of work, like today, I'm not in the mood for experimental beer types, uh, to be honest. So like craft beer or something. I really enjoy Bitburger Pils. Bitburger is a brewery here in Germany that brews great traditional beer, which makes me feel like home because I grew up in North Germany and... Traditionally, we drink a lot of Pilsner beer and export there. So and Bitburger is one of the breweries here in the South that create a great Pilsner beer. And they are also customers. So it's a win-win situation for everybody.
1: It's interesting you mentioned Bitburger. It's like one of my favorite imports. You know, you can get here. here, Yeah, here in the US, you can get it. I can get it at my grocery store in a four pack of what we call tall boys, but uh, 16 ounce cans. And uh, I love it. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but doesn't Bitburger, they have their own kind of ho- like their own hops that are kind of secretive? They use their own hops?
4: I have heard about it, but I'm not sure about that. Oh, but it, it wouldn't be surprising because they have they're the best brewmasters and um, they have a huge laboratory and um, they are pretty far advanced in every single step in a brewery so i'm a huge fan as you can tell you may not
1: have heard about this i don't know if it if it traveled back that way but sierra nevada is like kind of one of our legendary Mm -hmm. um very large craft brewers here in the states they for the past number of years and this i'll get this relates to munich malt right they do an oktoberfest collaboration with a german brewery okay yeah, they change it up every year. And I believe last year's they did a collaboration with Bitburger and it was killer. I was oh, such cool. a good beer. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm thinking it's their yeast. Bitburger has their own house yeast. That's what it is, not hops. It's their yeast.
4: So yeast is pretty normal in German breweries that they propagating their own yeast.
1: Yeah, I guess they've just had a, you know, a classic German lager strain in-house so long that it's over the generations. It's kind of became burger's own strain which is really cool
4: this is so cool so we have in munich there is um Stefan, so um you can study brewing there and they have a yeast bank and i would love to go there and just look around all those yeast types that they have and that they are collecting and um, saving for the future which is crazy
1: yeah, uh, some of the some of the craft breweries here have even got them sent from that yeast bank mm-hmm. all the way over here for certain ones. And uh, you know, I'm here in Central Texas, and there's a pretty strong German brewing tradition here in Central Texas. So it's pretty neat how
0: it all how everything travels. Mm, cool. Sure does, sure does. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. I, I know again, it, it's late your time. I think it's what seven forty-five uh, yes. for for oh, grand So yeah, go, <laughs> go go get yourself a bit burger. And I really appreciate your patience and and jumping on. You, you've been a wealth of knowledge.
4: Thanks for having me,
0: guys. Yeah. And thanks again to uh, Terry Ferendorf, Malt Innovation Center Manager with Great Western Malt. Jessica, thank you again. And Betsy Roberts from uh, Brees, the Malting Quality Manager, talking about Munich. It's been a just an awesome episode. Wealth of information. And for those listening out there, hit subscribe on whatever portal you use for the podcast. We'd love to have you back uh, very soon. We've got some uh, interesting shows coming up. And Grant, thanks, buddy, as always. And uh, we'll we'll chat with you here very soon. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone.